Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I know you are dying to talk about a movie that you rented this week. Maybe not because it's as perfect as you remember, though. (laughs) Yeah, uh, well, luckily, I don't know that I remembered it as being perfect, Mm -hmm. uh, at least not as a whole. Oh, I'm uh, sorry if I misrepresented. (laughs) No, no, no. There are aspects of this film that are perfect. Uh, But uh, yeah, we're talking, of course, about the 1985 Ridley Scott film Legend, which I imagine a number of you, when you saw that we were doing an episode or a pair of episodes actually on unicorns, you probably thought about Legend. Now, I think in the tradition of Ridley Scott movies, not all Ridley Scott movies, but a lot of them, Mm -hmm. this is a great looking film that really undersells in the plot and writing department. Oh, yeah. It's it's tremendous looking. Every frame of this film is just gorgeous and Baroque and slimy and like you can you can feel it like there's. Uh. It's a very moist film, I must say. <laughs> like every everybody, whether you're a, you know a, a, an elf or a goblin, whether you're a unicorn or a or a demon, there's 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 a moistness to every character. <laughs> that's a that's a word, okay? Yeah. Uh, well, we should come back, by the way, someday to the question of why people hate the word moist so much. <laughs> you know, it, you know that thing about yeah, how it's yeah. like the most hated word in English. I think there are reasons for that. Well, I can I can always say wet. Yeah. There are a lot of wet unicorns. It's a damp fantasy. <laughs> it is. It is a damp, swampy world uh, that then is, is is frozen. And, you know, it's it's weird, too, that you mentioned the writing because um, William Hortzberg uh, wrote the screenplay. And I don't I, know who that is. Who uh, is. So he wrote a book called Falling Angel, this kind of a uh, supernatural noir uh, novel. And, uh, and I remember it being a pretty fun read. They made it into a movie called Angel Heart, which I, I don't think I ever actually saw. Okay. But, uh, but you know. William Horsberg was a legitimate writer, uh, mm-hmm. you know, brought in on this project. But yeah, when you think about legend or when I think about legend, what I think about are just the fabulous visuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about the terrific score by Tangerine Dream. Yeah. Tom Cruise with sweaty hair. Sweaty hair. Tom Cruise. Does it have the young lady from Ferris Bueller's Day Off in it? Yes, it does. Uh, yeah, because in addition to Tom Cruise, Tim Curry as uh, Darkness, it does have Mia Sarah as uh, the, as the lady, the princess. Now, a big thing about the movie, I think one of the big reasons it falls flat for me is that any movie you tell me Tim Curry's in it, and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, so it's going to be one of my favorite movies ever. <laughs> but Tim Curry, even though he's in fantastic demon makeup in this oh, movie, yeah. and they give him these horns that are bigger than his arms, mm-hmm. uh, gigantic horns, this big wide red devil face, it, the, the makeup does all of the acting, and there's not a, actually a whole lot for Tim Curry to do in the movie. Yeah, that uh, makeup, by the way, that was Rob Botten uh, coming off of John Carpenter's The Thing oh, to wow. do the, the monster effects in this. Yeah, Tim yeah Curry, that fits. Yeah. And uh, the, the suit fits <laughs> uh, almost too well because, yeah, Tim Curry is just kind of entombed within it. And, and, and his voice even sounds like it is constricted or even, uh, you know, like electronically modulated a little. Now, we've got to get to the unicorns in a second, but one more thing. There was, a vo- there was an actress you were telling me about who's in the movie who plays one of the goblins. Yeah, yeah. There, uh, a stage character act- actor by the name of Alice Platon. Mm-hmm. 
And she's phenomenal as uh, the goblin Blix. Like she really steals the show as the uh, the scheming goblin underling of Tim Carey's darkness character. But doesn't the movie basically just start with it's kind of like the Empire Strikes Back, right? It starts yeah. with like the bad guys chewing each other out. Yeah, yeah. In a in a movie that is essentially sold as this this fantasy uh, adventure, it does begin in in the swampiest, darkest, uh, most hellish location in the film. Essentially, with a, a, a villainous uh, performance review uh-huh. uh, for the Goblin. How would you rate your own communication <laughs> skills this quarter? <laughs> Yeah, and then Blix is like, well, I think I'm doing well, Lord. And uh, and Darkness <laughs> says, uh, well, what I would really like you to do, uh, I think this is an area of potential growth for you, is mm-hmm. I would like for you to get me a unicorn horn. Ah, yeah. the unicorn horn. Now, why does Darkness want a unicorn horn in this fantasy movie? Well, first of all, unicorns are bright and lovely. So what else would you want to do but... Uh, but hurt a unicorn if you're an awful demon. But also, they are traditionally magical items that command great power. Yeah, so even though legend might not actually be the most traditional fantasy story, it does sort of convey the way we've received these types of characters. So we've got the big horn devil mm-hmm. on, on the one hand, and he lives in the pits of darkness with all these infernal flames and goblins and everything around him. And then on the other hand, you've got this ultimately holy innocent beast, right. which is the unicorn. And I want to, as we talk about some unicorn lore today, by the way, this is going to be part one of a two-part episode we're doing on unicorns because there's a lot of unicorn stuff out there. I want us to think about why are unicorns considered so holy? Like, why is the unicorn the counterpart, the, the the essential opposite of the demonic spirit? Yeah. I mean, why does darkness in legend say they are each crowned with a single horn reaching straight to heaven? It's more pinhead than darkness, yeah. but you get the gist. <laughs> it's not literally true, though. It's just like <laughs> it's like a footlong horn. Yeah, but I like the idea that it's kind of like an antenna of holiness. Yeah. Like it is it is in dire- it's getting a direct like high quality Wi-Fi signal mm-hmm. from the celestial world. I'm thinking of what Belloc says in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's a radio for talking to God. <laughs> it is. It is kind of. Yeah, so uh, as we as we roll through this uh these episodes, I'm going to keep thinking about legend. You likely uh, out there will as well. And luckily, its treatment of the unicorn does match up with a number of the different myths we're going to discuss, folklores, and other fictional treatments. Now, we're going to try also to discuss some of the science that can be connected to unicorn lore, and we'll focus on that especially in the more biological second part episode here. But today, we definitely wanted to start by looking at the archaeological record and uh, sort of the the myth and folklore history of what the one-horned beast is. Yeah, there's a there's a wonderful quote from Jorge Luis Borges in his book, uh, The Book of Imaginary Beings, uh-huh. uh, in which he says, the first version of the unicorn is nearly identical with the latest. Hmm. Which is which is interesting. Like it is a it is a creature that has not put, changed all that much in our various treatments. If you look at the unicorn in legend, if you look at the unicorn in any other films or or it's or how it appears on a lunchbox mm-hmm. uh, that you might buy at, at a at a store today, it's basically the same concept. The concept has it, it has var- varying levels of symbolic meaning, mm-hmm. but at heart, all you have is a a horse with a horn on its head. Well, I think maybe we should start by going as far back as we can to the first known unicorn. All right, let's do it. Where are we riding off to, Joe? I think let's ride off to the Indus Valley. 
Hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Indus Valley Civilization, which was a powerful Bronze Age civilization. It's often now cited as one of this list of sort of the cradles of civilization on Earth. If you want to think about areas where going back into ancient times, there have been mass populations of humans practicing agriculture, settling in cities, living together, you've got several areas, right? You've got the Yellow River Valley, you've got the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East, you've got Mesoamerica, and another big one is the Indus Valley. And that's going to be in areas that are now encompassing parts of Afghanistan. Pakistan, Pakistan, and western and northern India, around the Indus River. So this civilization flourished from the middle of the 3rd millennium BCE, about 2600, until about 1900 BCE, before falling off. And according to Andrew Robinson, writing for Nature in 2015, two of the largest cities in the Indus Valley civilization, known as Mohenjo-Daro and Harappa, or which are both situated along the Indus River or its tributaries, were highly advanced in terms of civic infrastructure. He claims they actually had street design and things like sewer drainage to rival the design of 20th century cities. Oh, wow. And so the civilization left behind tons of beautiful artifacts for us. They had fabulous jewelry and all that kind of stuff. But then also, of course, they had these artifacts known as seal stones, these carved stones, including long undeciphered writing and a famous style of ancient unicorn depiction found on many seal stones throughout the culture, including one that I've uh, put a picture up for us to look at in our notes here. It's this 4,000-year-old stone from the Mohenjo-Daro site. And so what are we looking at here, Robert? Well, we're definitely looking at a, an, an equine creature, I feel. I mean, I look at, uh, I look at it and I see a creature with the, the basic body and proportions of a, of a horse. Yeah. It doesn't look very bovine. You could maybe make a case that it's sort of an antelope, but I don't know. I, 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 see, I very much see the hindquarters of a horse here. Yeah, it's got four legs. It's clearly got hooves. Mm -hmm. It's got a tail that looks like it could be maybe a horse tail or maybe a cow tail of some kind. Uh, and then on its head, its head goes up and then sloping at a curve up away from the top of its head, it has one horn. Hmm. A picture of another stone from Mohenjo-Daro we have here. A uh, very similar type animal, right? We see this sort of bull, sort of horse-looking animal that, again, has a tail. It's got four legs, clearly clearly with hooves. It's got some kind of artifact in the lower left-hand corner of the picture that could be like an, uh, an incense-burning device or some kind of religious artifact. It's got this undeciphered script up at the top, and then it's, again, got this single horn in profile. And so what people have been asking for a long time since these, these artifacts were first discovered is, what are these animals? They're often referred to as unicorns, but we don't actually know what they are for sure. Are they mythical one-horned four-legged beasts that are supposed to communicate some kind of, uh, you know, magical power? Or are they mundane two-horned animals that only appear one-horned because they're in profile? That's an option, right? Like – uh, one of the things we see in the carvings depicting bees in ancient Egypt is sometimes it looks like they've got the wrong numbers of legs or something. Oh, yes. We uh, talked about that in our uh, our episode on the, the tears of Ray. Yeah, but it just seems to be an issue of, of perspective or, or in how the carvings come through to us. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, it, uh, it's worth noting that uh, in 1892, uh, Frederick uh, Schrader, 
uh, suggested that the uh, the idea, the, just the very idea of the unicorn might have emerged from Greek interpretations of various uh, uh, bas-reliefs that depicted profile depictions of bulls. Oh, so that's, a, that's amazing. The idea that the unicorn could possibly have been an outgrowth of misinterpretations of art. Right. That art created the unicorn because of the side perspective of animals that are supposed to have two horns, but you can only see one. Yeah, so it's kind of kind of get into the idea that the unicorn emerges from error. Now, is it an error in artistic depiction? Is it mm-hmm. an error in, in interpretation? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's hard to, I guess, really nail down uh, who bears the blame of the unicorn. It's almost like imagining that there is an artistic tradition somewhere in ancient culture that generally draws people with their heads facing to the side so that you can only see one of their eyes and the other Mm -hmm. one is hidden on the other side of the face behind the bridge of the nose and that this type of artwork would lead to the mistaken belief that this culture contained cycloptic people. Yeah, there's only one eye in the picture. Uh, That must be what they look like. Well, I think that's an interesting possibility to consider. Another option to consider is that the animals depicted in these carvings are actually supposed to be some real animal that was actually one-horned but was mundane, wasn't some kind of mythological beast. And that's a thing we'll have to consider here. And I I think this trilemma is going to follow us throughout our, our study of unicorns throughout history and culture. You always have to ask, are you dealing with a a magical non-existent animal, a two-horned real mundane animal that's being misinterpreted, or a real one-horned animal that is maybe being a little bit misdescribed? Yeah, misdescription and misinterpretation, I think, are going to be a a common theme, whether we're talking about someone seeing, uh, again, an an ancient uh, carving and misinterpreting it, or someone repeating something they heard about a rhinoceros. All right, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will get into the history of the Western Unicorn. All right, we're back. We're going to talk about uh, yeah the, the history of the Western Unicorn, which is, is generally what you're going to think of when you hear the, the word unicorn. One of the things that I think is going to be most interesting about the history of the Western Unicorn is that generally the Western Unicorn does not appear in ancient texts as a mythological beast but as a physical mundane beast, even though it's sometimes uh, given a lot of superlatives and powers and stuff, it's not described as a part of myth, but more as a part of natural history in the natural world. Yeah, indeed. Let's look at some of these examples of individuals writing about the unicorn. So Greek historian Catesius wrote of unicorns in the 5th century BCE, describing them as white creatures like asses with purple heads, blue eyes, and a central horn of red, black, and white. Oh, that's a lot more colorful than the standard, like, bleach white unicorn we get in legend and other modern works. This is something uh, you see, we're going to see time and time again. These older depictions of unicorns are going to be pretty, like, wild, wildly colored. So mm-hmm. it's not, not only the fact that their form is different, but also their pigmentation. Well, I like those unicorns better. Why can't we get the colorful ones back? I guess we <laughs> get them in Lisa Frank. Yeah, yes. Um, now, a Greek historian, Herodotus, he also wrote of the unicorn, as did Pliny the Elder centuries later. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually have a quote from old uh, Pliny here to read. He said, quote, the fiercest animal is the unicorn, which 
in the rest of the body resembles a horse, but in the head a stag, in the feet an elephant, and in the tail a boar, and has a deep bellow and a single black horn, three feet long, projecting from the middle of the forehead. They say that it is impossible to capture this animal alive. Yeah, it cannot be taken alive. Now, this does occur in a passage in Pliny's Natural History alongside other strange claims where he's supposedly talking about the animals that you could find in India. Mm -hmm. And he says things like, quote, the Orsian Indians hunt down a kind of ape which has the body white all over as well as a very fierce animal called the Monoceros or Monoceros. And then he goes into the unicorn. But yeah, wait a minute, this, this pale ape all over that they hunt down in, in India, that doesn't seem true either. That's right. It's not like this is a, a mention of the unicorn in a text that is otherwise uh, mundane. No. There's so much. There's so many fantastic and just outright wrong uh, tidbits uh, throughout his work. Yeah, Pliny seems rather promiscuous in his reporting. Right. He, yeah. He will report all kinds of things as real nature facts of the world. Yes, second and third hand accounts from other travelers who have actually seen these things, presumably, and then he's just collecting them into his work. Or who might have been making them up. I mean, it's yeah. hard to know. <laughs> One more thing about Pliny's description, though, uh, is that so he says that the, the unicorn of India makes a deep lowing noise. And when he describes the horn of the forehead, he says that it's two cubits in length. Two cubits is about one yard or about 0.9 meters. That is a long horn. Usually the horns you see on the, the modern unicorn depictions, I'd say, what are they, about a foot? Yeah, they tend to be a lot shorter. Uh, but, but when you look at some of these, for instance, some of the tapestries we're going to discuss, mm -hmm. they also show a very like javelin-horned unicorn. Yeah. The second and uh, third century Roman author Elian uh, wrote of the unicorn in the uh, second century CE, calling it the Cartesanon of India, yellowish red with a black horn and long mane, a fierce creature, and this is a common... Uh, uh, feature of descriptions of the unicorn, an enemy of the lion. Oh, yeah. I like that you highlight that relationship because there are some other places, especially I think I'm going to mention later in this episode, where animals that may have inspired the unicorn are traditionally depicted as like a alongside the lion and a kind of pantheon of powerful animals. Mm -hmm. But I want to explore just a little more of what uh, Elian says. He, so he writes in his On the Nature of Animals, India quote, fosters asses with a single horn. I like that phrasing. But he says that uh, from these horns, they make drinking vessels. And if anyone puts a deadly poison in them and the man drinks, the plot will do him no harm. For it seems that the horn of both the horse and of the ass is an antidote to the poison. Ah, uh, yes. So this brings us to one of the most famous legends about the, the Western unicorn, especially that pervades all of this literature, is that there's something magical and special about the horn, not just in service of the animal's life, but if you can take that horn off of it, you can get some magic stuff out of it as well. Yes. Uh, so the uh, the idea that, say, the, the unicorn could dip its head and touch its horn to water, and then that water would be made uh, uh, drinkable. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, yeah, you could also potentially saw that puppy off, uh, work it into uh, like your, your, your beer stein or something, and then pr pr protect yourself from poisoning. Now, we mentioned a little bit of this in our previous episode about poison and the rhino horn. So I mm -hmm. guess we'll link that on the landing page here if you want to go back and listen to that whole episode about 
uh, drinking vessels made out of rhinoceros horn that were believed to purge poison from drinks or react with poison to show that a drink had been poisoned or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and the actual uh, chemical argument for, for the, these things actually working. Mm-hmm. Now, one more account of the unicorn I want to mention here. Uh, this one comes to us uh, uh, in, uh, in the second century CE Greek text, Physiologus. So this is essentially an, an early bestiary, you mm-hmm. know, uh, a monster manual, if you will, <laughs> uh, a tome of all the various uh, exotic creatures one might find in the world. And in it, the unknown author describes how a unicorn may be captured by baiting it with a virgin. Now, that ties into the idea that the unicorn cannot be captured alive, right? We mentioned that's part of the legend. You, you can't capture it alive Unless, apparently, you use this special strategy. Right, which, again, is uh, referenced in legend. Uh, oh, really? Because uh, when Blix asks how to capture the uh, the, the unicorn, uh, Tim Curry's uh, darkness says, innocence. Oh, okay. Innocence, pronouncing it like he never actually said the word before. <laughs> um, Doesn't quite feel right in his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Am I saying this right? Innocence. Innocence. In, uh, something like that. But so how does this work? How do you use a virgin to capture a unicorn? This is the way Jorge Luis Borges summarizes it in his book, Imaginary Beings. Quote, it springs into the virgin's lap and she warms it with love and carries it off to the palace of kings. Oh, no. So she... <laughs> So because of her innocence and goodness and virtue, she can lure the unicorn to herself and then by pretending to make friends with it, she can lead it to the bad guys who want to get its horn. Yeah, yeah, which is basically what we see happen in, in legend. The idea that the, the unicorn is just too pure for uh, for the forces of darkness to uh, to take on directly, but they can essentially manipulate others, uh, so, you know, such as the virgin, into uh, enabling its capture. That is cruel. I don't like that. It's this 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 trope we're going to return to again and again that the unicorn is this 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 holy creature, but also a, essentially a wild creature, very much a part of the natural world, and it is it is too good for the human world. Like all we're going to try and do is hunt it, capture it, probably and, oh and, oh and process it for its parts and eat mm. it. It's kind of this holy vessel that just shames us for our treatment of nature. That definitely comes through. But it's also a lot more than that, uh, because as as with anything, you give uh, you give enough writers enough time, they are going to interpret something as symbolic as the unicorn in many different ways. And as Borges points out, the unicorn goes on to represent everything from uh, the Holy Ghost and Jesus Christ uh, to Mercury and uh, and just and just outright evil at different points as well. Evil. Wait yeah. a minute. Now I thought we were setting up this thing where it's this holy innocent creature. Well, but it has this very phallic thing on its head is the is the deal. That's true. People are always going to seize on some preopetic kind of imagery. Yeah. And I guess that'll tend to make people assume that it, what, somehow embodies lust or, or mm-hmm. masculinity or male fertility in some way. Now, let's get back to what would happen again, uh, according to these legends, if you, say, opportunistically broke off that preapic horn. Well, then you have a, a fabulous ingredient for your various magical concoctions. Uh-huh. Um, we already touched on the the whole poison rhino horn thing a little bit, but I found more information on this uh, from Toxicology in the Middle Ages and Renaissance, edited by Philip Wexler, and featuring a paper titled Origin of Myths Related to uh, Curative, Anecdotal, and Other Medicinal Properties of Animal Horns in the Middle Ages by Chris Lavers. Uh-huh. And he refers to the book uh, 
Physica by Hildegard of Bingen, <laughs> who lived uh, 1098 through 1179. And this is what he wrote about the unicorn horn. I hope we're going to get some alchemy type stuff here. <laughs> oh, yes. Quote, pulverize the liver of a unicorn. No. <laughs> yes. Give this powder in fat prepared with yolk of egg and make it a salve and there will be no leprosy. <laughs> The leprosy comes, of course, oftentimes from the black bile and from the black stagnant blood. If you make a girdle from the hide of the unicorn no. <laughs> and gird yourself with it, no plague, however severe, and no fever will harm you. Also, if you make shoes from the hide and wear them, no. you will always have sound feet, sound legs, and sound joints. And also, will no pestilence harm you while you are wearing them? Well, this is just bad advice in every possible way. This is like factually wrong and morally bad. That's the worst kind of advice. And yet, there is also a sense of use every part of the unicorn, right? Don't just saw its horn off and run off and, you know, into the, the darkness with it. Use the rest of the animal as well. Um, he also recommends placing the hoof of a unicorn under a plate or cup to cause boiling in the presence of poison. Okay, so this brings us back to the idea that it will somehow make poison not poisonous anymore or alert you to the presence of poison. Right. Now, in talking about uh, the Middle Ages here and, and medieval Europe in particular, uh, certainly there are a number of classical texts that, that, that they could draw upon to learn about the unicorn. But what about the most... Uh, essential text of the time. What about the Holy Bible? What does it tell us about the unicorn? Let's have a reading from the King James <laughs> Bible, shall we? Let's do it. So first I want to read Isaiah 34, 6 to 7. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord hath a sacrifice to Bozrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edumia. And the unicorns shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. <laughs> I have a lot of questions about that. This this fat, fleshy sword that the the Lord is uh, wielding here, and then the the flock of unicorns that 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 seem to to flock down amidst all the bloodshed? Well, yeah. So this is apparently saying that – so there's going to be a great smiting of many things, including all of your unicorns. Oh. And the dust is going to be, you know, made fat with their fatness. I do not remember this passage from Sunday school. I want to read you another <laughs> one. Uh, let's go to Job, Job 39, 9 through 12. Now, this is part of – there are sort of these long didactic poetic sections of Job where there are a lot of uh, sort of repeated phrases in the sentences of like, is this going to happen? Are you going to do this? Can you do this? Yeah, this is the, basically the whole idea being who do you think you are, Job? Right. So here's one starting at verse 9. Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow? Or will he harrow the valleys after thee? Wilt thou trust him because his strength is great? Or wilt thou leave thy labor to him? Wilt thou believe him that he will bring home thy seed and gather it into thy barn? Hmm. Now, this sounds an awful lot like this unicorn is being reduced to agricultural labor here. Well, it's saying like, are you, what, you think you're going to get a unicorn and reduce it to agricultural <laughs> labor? Think again, buddy. And these are by no means the only references to unicorns in the King James version of the Bible. There, I think, I was looking, I don't want to be wrong about this, but I'm, I think I'm going to say about nine references oh, wow. to unicorns in the King James Bible. 
And on one hand, that shouldn't be super surprising because the Bible contains other passages that appear to be references to mythical beasts, right? We've got the behemoth, whether or not that's a mythical beast, not quite sure. Definitely the Leviathan in the book of Job is supposed to be a mythical beast because the Leviathan pretty clearly is a fire-breathing dragon sea monster. Mm-hmm. If you doubt this, check out Job 41, 19 to 21, quote, Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. Yeah, the the author here couldn't be any more clear. Yeah, this is a Mm fire-breathing dragon. But at the same time, I think there's a very good case to be made that the word in the Bible that the King James translators interpreted as unicorn was unfortunately not actually a reference to a mythical beast like the Leviathan, but a mistranslation of a word for a normal mundane animal, but in a very interesting way. So let's chase that lead for a second. Robert, let's have a reading from Deuteronomy 33. Let's start right in the middle of 33 verse 16. Let the blessing come upon the head of Joseph and upon the top of the head of him that was separated from his brethren. His glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth, and they are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Now, wait a second. Something read kind of wrong there, right? Because The horns of unicorns, Hmm. like horns, plural. Now, you might be able to read that as, well, you got a big mess of unicorns. And as a group, there are horns, plural. But that's not actually what the passage says, right? His glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them, he shall push the people together uh, to the ends of the earth. So it sounds like he's describing a pair of horns or multiple horns, who knows, maybe even seven horns, a bunch of horns on a single animal head as a point of comparison for the strength of a single person. So what the heck is going on here if this is supposed to be a unicorn? Yeah, I'm feeling I'm I'm picturing something more like a bull or a gazelle now. Yeah, uh, and I think you might be onto something there, Robert. So what we have to consider here is that the translators who produced the King James version of the Bible were working with a lot of limitations. These were scholars who you know studied ancient languages and ancient manuscripts to try to make the best translation they could. But they were working at the beginning of the 17th century, right? It was like the first decade of the 17th century, and they had this colossal job of taking this huge tradition of different manuscripts written over hundreds of years, primarily in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, and translating them into a Bible for the English-speaking world to read. And there were lots of – there were all kinds of problems, right? For one thing, these translators had access to lower quality, more corrupted manuscripts than the translators of more recent versions. But also these Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic texts, as you might imagine, were full of ancient words and expressions that the King James translators did not know what to make of. And how would they have, right? I mean, they they were working in the beginning of the 17th century, but they did their best. So sometimes their best involved unnecessary invocation of mythological beasts. <laughs> so the word that the King James translators rendered as unicorn is in fact the Hebrew word re'em. And at the beginning of the 17th century, nobody in this English-speaking committee knew what re'em meant. And today, actually, scholars are not certain that they know for sure what Re'em was supposed to mean, but they think they've got a pretty good guess. So one question to begin with, 
If the King James translators didn't know what was meant by Re'em, why did they choose unicorn and not something else? Why didn't they just say like, I don't know, uh, uh, cow or what, just something random? Yeah, because there's nothing, it doesn't seem like there's anything really in the text that demands the creature have one horn. It just needs to be a, like a strong, powerful beast, mm-hmm. right? So, so the, the, the existence of a single horn uh, is, is not important. Not in the text itself, but here's where it comes in. So I've read the UNC Chapel Hill biblical scholar Bart Ehrman speculate that the reason the King James translators rendered Re'em as unicorn may have been that they were taking their cue from an earlier translation of the Bible, not into English, obviously, but into Greek, the Hmm. Greek Septuagint. And this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, which had existed since ancient times. It had been around since the Ptolemaic period, I think. And in the Septuagint, the Hebrew word re'em is translated into the Greek word monokeros. Mono meaning one and keros meaning horn. Now, that actually just pushes the question farther back. Like, why did these scholars in the Greek translation translate Re'em as monokeros? And there we don't know for sure, but one possibility could be that they were thinking that it was a reference to the rhinoceros. That's right. One horn. That would make sense. Mm -hmm. But later scholars have come up with a pretty good idea of what the Hebrew Re'em actually meant. And my main source here was a summary in a book called Sacred Monsters, Mysterious and Mythical Creatures of Scripture, Talmud, and Midrash by Natan Slifkin, who is a rabbi, but he also – he deals with zoological sciences and stuff. So he interprets a lot of references to animals and beasts in the Old Testament and the Talmud and other Jewish texts uh, in light of zoological science. And so what Slifkin says is that modern scholars have suggested that the Re'em of the Hebrew Bible actually refers to the Oryx, Ah. Bose primigenius. And these were the wild ancestors of modern domesticated cattle. They lived throughout Europe, Asia, and North Africa, and they had these huge forward and upward-facing horns, perfect for goring. And the descriptions in the Bible are also a very nice fit with their reputation as extremely aggressive and powerful. You wouldn't want to face down an oryx in the wild. Now, the oryx are extinct today, right? But they still existed in the ancient Near East when these texts were written. And in fact, we think the last of them died out in Poland in 1627. But Slifkin points out that there are ancient Near Eastern engravings of oryx, specifically in the Assyrian context, bearing the name Remu, a close cognate for the Hebrew Re'em. So there's good reason for thinking Re'em probably meant oryx. And that works, right? And in, in the context of the passages, it is a mighty wild beast. Yes, and they truly were mighty because they were huge. Like they could stand about 1.8 meters or about six feet tall at the shoulder. So imagine, you know, you're, you're talking about a wild bull with gigantic horns that was aggressive and stubborn and probably taller than you were. Maybe not taller than you, Robert, but... No, that's, that's, that's still t- much broader than me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Far more intimidating than me if you were to, to happen upon, upon one in a field. Yeah, and so this makes me think about a thing. When, when you read about the ancient Middle East and all of the bull gods and bull-headed deities of the ancient world and the power they were supposed to embody, you might think, why imagine all of this raw, holy, scary kind of power in essentially a domesticated animal that you eat or milk or use for farm labor? Mm. You know, like wh- why is that? Why, why a bull? Why not some scarier wild animal? But I would suggest when you think about what bulls meant to the people of the ancient world, they, you know, they had begun domesticating breeds of cattle. 
But you should also think about the context of the primordial bull, the wild primordial bull, the aurochs, which was a mighty and threatening beast. Wow. It was, it was essentially like the god cow of, uh, of the ancient world. Yeah. And, and you, see it, you see it inspiring the imagination of you know, pre-civilization pre peoples, right? Even in the Paleolithic period, aurochs appear in cave art. Like if you think about the paintings at Lascaux in southwestern France, these are uh, giant cave paintings and they're amazing. They're from the upper Paleolithic, the Stone Age. And the most famous section of the cave at Lascaux is known as the Hall of the Bulls, which shows these four black aurochs. One of the bulls depicted is more than five meters long or about 17 feet, which is gigantic for a cave painting. Wow. So, so ultimately in the Bible, we're seeing references not to the unicorn from legend, but to a beast that looks more like Tim Curry's character from legend. <laughs> That's a good point of comparison. Uh, I mean, there, there's a reason that this became the largest single animal ever discovered in cave art. These were fearsome, powerful, revered animals. Hunting them was a serious task. You know, that they probably were hunted by Paleolithic humans, but that was a dangerous endeavor, right? These mm -hmm. are strong, powerful. They could inspire biblical terror. And I mentioned earlier about the keeping the company of lions. Oryx are also depicted in the ancient Babylonian wonder, the Ishtar Gate, which I bet you've probably seen pictures of before, Robert. Oh, yeah. This is the big blue one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With, with the arch. And uh, so it depicts three animals, lions, dragons, and oryx. Wow. The kind of company this primordial bull kept. Also, I want to add one last bit of interesting news about the oryx from recent years. Um, some conservationists actually believe that the oryx were a sort of keystone species in Europe before it went extinct that was crucial for maintaining European biodiversity and mm -hmm. the wildlife environments. And as a result, there's actually been an effort to backbreed a version of the wild oryx that could be released into the wild as grazers to help Europe sort of uh, maintain its original ecosystems. Huh. Because this would, this would be a creature, I'm assuming, that would fill the basic niche that uh, uh, the, the American buffalo would have filled, right? Something kind of like yeah. that. I mean, you, you can't make a one-to-one -one comparison. Mm -hmm. But yeah, because it is something that is a herbivore. It is a grazer. But it's also not something that's easily picked off by any wolf or what. I mean, this is a huge, powerful animal. But anyway, coming back to the Bible translations, most modern Bible translations since the King James, for example, the you know, anyone you pick up today, the New Revised Standard Version, is probably going to render those unicorn passages not as unicorn but as wild ox or something like that. So it, it really does kind of transform it, but it can still be pretty interesting if you picture the oryx in your mind in all of its powerful glory. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will it spend the night at your crib from Job? Or in Isaiah, wild ox and shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls and their land shall be soaked with blood and their soil made rich with fat. Or uh, that Deuteronomy passage, a firstborn bull, majesty is his, his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them, he gores the peoples, driving them to the ends of the earth. Oh, wow. You know, it's, it's fascinating in all of this that uh, it also ends up mirroring uh, Peter Beagle's uh, The Last Unicorn. Oh, Yeah. This, of course, is the, uh, the 1968 fantasy novel, later made into the 1982 animated film uh, from Rankin and Bass. But in that, we see the, uh, the red bull as the, uh, as, as, the, as the nemesis of the unicorns that has driven them all into the sea uh, for the evil king. And it is very much in keeping with the idea of an auroch as opposed to your, your just standard domesticated cow. I think about the oryx often whenever I think about the minotaur, about oh, how yeah. we, need to, we need to sort of bring back the scariness of the primordial cattle. 
instead of just thinking about it as a thing you grill. Yeah, it's it's regal nature is really lost when you you look at footage of say you know modern cattle rearing practices in right. say the American Midwest. Yeah, well, I mean, it's one of those many products of agriculture, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, agriculture is sort of the process of of taking this wild thing that lives for its own purposes and bending it to human purposes. Yeah, capturing the unicorn, really, right? And processing it for its liver, pulverizing oh, no, the liver of no. the unicorn. Uh, one more option I want to mention is that there could be other things. You know, that reference in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uh, it's got this monokeros idea. Slifkin mentions this could also maybe refer to the oryx. I know that sounds a lot like oryx, which we've just been talking about, but this is oryx, O-R-Y-X, which is a kind of antelope with straight horns that in profile could easily look like one single horn. And Mm. we're back to the idea of uh, animals depicted in profile again, like with the Indus River carvings, is that maybe something like the oryx with this one horn depicted in profile because the two horns line up very evenly. Right, or or seen at a distance as silhouette. One more fun bit from the King James issue uh, that, that we should do, and then I guess we'll take a break and move on to some other things, is that there's another beast that is, I think, somewhere between the Leviathan and the unicorn, meaning it might be a reference to a mythological beast or it might be a reference to a normal animal, not quite clear, which is the Bible's reference to satyrs. Ah, I had no idea. So Isaiah 13, 21 in the King James Version, we're in the middle of this prophecy about how Babylon is going to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah, and the destruction will be so terrible that no human will ever be able to inhabit Babylon again. Picking up the quote, quote, But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there. Oh, man. Uh, So uh, for anyone who needs a reminder, uh, when we're talking about satyrs, we're talking about uh, the the human-goat hybrids of of Greek and Roman tradition. They were known as fawns in the Roman tradition. And they were attendants to Silenus and Bacchus, and they tended to chase nymphs around and are generally depicted as just the embodiments of drunken male lechery and aggressive sexuality. There's, I mean, there's really a robust um, artistic tradition depicting them. I think of them in a much darker set of motifs because I primarily think of them now in the context of uh, the great god Pan, oh, yeah. Machen, which is much darker than them just being kind of uncontrollable party dudes. Yeah. But in the paintings, you'll often depict them. They're also often depicted as just, yeah, kind of out of control party dudes, which can be pretty terrifying in its own right. That's true. Now, in terms of how satyrs are treated in the Christian tradition, uh, it's it's interesting because in hindsight, it seems destined to be classified as a demon, right? Right. Oh, yeah. It's just your like a satanic satanic goat man. And essentially, in a legend, the darkness character is like just a a, 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 a satyr on steroids. Oh, you're talking about the movie legend. For yes. a second, I meant in legend. Not in, no, in legend uh, and then in parentheses 1985. This is probably going to be a problem for listeners. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but the thing is when you start looking around at, uh, at medieval examples of treatment of the satyr, you, you can find it both ways. Mm-hmm. So in Liz Herbert McAvoy's Monstrous Masculinities in Julian of Norwich is a Revelation of Love and the book of Marjorie of Kemp, she points out that uh, there's this individual by the name of Guy de Chaliac, a late Middle Ages authority on disease, and he drew explicit comparisons between lepers and satyrs. He cites that they both have stinking breath, prominent brows, paw-like hands, and I assume this might be due to 
decomposition of uh, tissues due to leprosy, Mm -hmm. as well as a ruddy complexion and, most importantly, black blemishes and black blood. Well, this sounds very prejudiced. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, I was looking at Sarah Solly's Idols and uh, Simulacra, and she points out that in the 14th century work Mandeville's Travels, which is uh, one of these these books of just uh, you know this character traveling the world and seeing all the fantastic sights of the of of, of the larger world. Okay, so that reads to me as full of lies. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it is. It is full of lies. Uh, but uh, but in it there are satyrs that pop up, and they're described as simply quote a deadly creature such as God had formed. Okay. So they were monsters. They were wonders in their own way, but they were part of the natural order of things. So again, we get back to this idea that in many of these uh, older texts, the unicorn is. Not not depicted as something holy and supernatural or unnatural in any way, shape, or form. It is uh, it is noteworthy, but it is a part of the world. Well, wait, did Mandeville have something to say about unicorns? Oh, yes. Yes, he did. Uh, he wrote of the unicorns, In that country uh, be many white elephants without number, and of unicorns and of lions of many manners, and many of such beasts that I have told before, and of many other hideous beasts without number. Oh, so he's one of these guys who's always reminding you the great stories he told you before. Yes, and there are, there are so many he hasn't even gotten to yet. <laughs> but I guess that's kind of what we do too, yeah. right? Oh, no. We've talked it's about true. it. You've heard us talk about it in a previous episode, and we could totally do an episode on this as well. We're the modern Mandevilles. I, I hope we're not lying about our travels in <laughs> no, such a way. No. Uh, but to, to go back to the idea of the satyrs in the Bible. So you've got the idea of satyrs, you know, your town's going to be destroyed or your city's going to be destroyed. You're going to have owls. The satyrs <laughs> are going to dance there. In the New American Standard Bible version of that verse, it's translated very differently. It's rendered not as a mythological beast, but just a reference to a mundane animal. So it says, quote, but desert creatures will lie down there and their house will be full of owls ostriches also will live there <laughs> and shaggy goats will frolic there which uh-huh. is an amazing bit of trash talk where you're saying your city is going to be destroyed when i'm through with you your house is going to be full of owls your kitchen's going to be full of shaggy goats yeah but it's it's, it's a different type of um uh, it's a different kind of doom isn't it you know it's like you can imagine like the fall of las vegas and then all that's left in this the apocalyptic wasteland are satyrs. And th- like that makes sense. You know, they're the only ones who can really get by there. Uh, but if it's just shaggy goats, it's, it's a little less sad. It's like even the, even the, the sin of, your, pl- of your, your city has washed away. And now it's just really your ruins are just a place that goats wander around. I like the owls. The owls, yeah. that's like somehow that's very savage. It's like, <laughs> oh, no, not owls. Well, it reminds me of uh, Futurama. Uh, in all the Futurama episodes, uh, it, they depict owls as infesting the cities of the future. Uh-huh. Um, apparently uh, playing on some politicians' comment that if, uh, if Al Gore got his way, that, that owls would infest uh, the country. The owls are not what they seem. Yeah. Anyway, I think we should take another quick break, and when we come back, we will discuss more wonderful unicorn lore. All right, we're back. Now, Robert, earlier we were talking about the idea that the unicorn in at least modern fiction, but also a lot of this ancient lore as well, seems to be a symbol of innocence, of holiness, of purity, of rectitude, right? I mean, before you get to the idea that it's also sort of a lustful or or sinful creature, you've got this very sinless unicorn. That's right. It's a wholly blameless creature. I would tend to think that the Christian tradition would do something with that. 
Yes, and what they do is is rather interesting. So, yeah, it, it again becomes a tradition in these bestiaries that the unicorn can be baited with a virgin. It's drawn to her purity, and then it can be captured and taken to away to a king. Mm-hmm. And so we can look to a 1220 Anglo-Saxon bestiary and see uh, from there uh, an emergent symbolism, that of the capture of the unicorn as the betrayal of Christ. Whoa, that, yeah, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Uh, So this is what Carol Rose uh, writes about. Carol Rose compiled uh, uh, two different uh, sort of modern bestiaries where she talks about folklore and legend and mythology of uh, monsters and dragons or fairies and other supernatural creatures. But the comparison here would be that that Christ was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, right, who mm-hmm. betrayed him with a kiss and led the Roman authorities to capture him and turn him over to Pontius Pilate. Right. Yeah. So uh, Rose writes, from that time, the unicorn seems to have acquired a graceful piety that the earlier descriptions had lacked. And so we see this again and again. We see this idea that the unicorn is a symbol of, among other things, Christ and his purity, like this thing that was too good for the world. And so, of course, we ended up uh, betraying it and killing it. Betrayed by a kiss. Yeah. And uh, I, it's also, I find this, this, uh, this, uh, this, this extra amusing because you'll see occasional memes these days that depict Jesus riding a unicorn or in the presence of unicorns. And For, it, to humorous effect. Right, I think, right. As if the, the idea of Jesus Christ and a unicorn sharing the same space is just completely ridiculous and so ridiculous uh, that it's just you know, just absurd. Mm-hmm. But but really, it's, it's a perfectly natural pairing. Uh, they have a history together. They have a past. One has been used to represent the other. Yeah, I would not be surprised at all if some piece of medieval art somewhere had Jesus riding in, into Jerusalem illustrated not as on a donkey, but as on a unicorn. Now, uh, we've mentioned uh, the, the travels of, uh, of Sir John Mandeville from the 14th century. Uh, also, another important uh, text that, that mentions unicorns, uh, that uh, of Marco Polo, the travels of Marco Polo. Okay. Are the travels of Marco Polo similarly full of lies? Well, a lot has been written uh, on, uh, on, on the journeys of Marco Polo, but in terms of the unicorn that he describes, uh, most of the interpretations I've uh, I've come across seem to say this was a rhinoceros. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, again, we come back to the rhino as we do time and time again. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've already mentioned the lion popping up uh, in the company of the unicorn. And, uh, and, and this, uh, this idea of lion-unicorn drama was well established by the 16th century. That's when English poet uh, Edmund Spencer wrote of it in The Fairy Queen, and this popularized the idea anew. And so you see lion and unicorn iconography, um, you know, is a, is, a, is a frequent trope from that point onward. Interesting. Now, we mentioned tapestries earlier. There are actually two sets of tapestries that, uh, that we should uh, mention here, uh, the first of which is the Lady and the Unicorn Tapestries. It's a series of six tapestries woven in Flanders around the 16th century, and they each feature a lion, a unicorn, and a beautiful woman, hmm. with the woman always uh, between the two. Uh, five of the tapestries seem to depict the five senses of touch, taste, smell, hearing, and sight, while a sixth is labeled Emon Sul Desir, To My Only Desire. And this one is, is different. This is, this is weird, right? Because we've already hit all the senses, and then there's this additional tapestry, uh-huh. um, which we'll, we'll get to here. So these were believed— It's believe, for proprioception, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, have, I have read some arguments uh, along those lines. 
But uh, these tapestries are believed to have been commissioned by a member of the prosperous uh, uh, Leviste family in the late 15th century. Mm-hmm. Now, there's an excellent episode of uh, CBC's Ideas podcast about uh, these tapestries titled The Lady and the Unicorn from 2016. Mm-hmm. I recommend everyone check that out. I'll try and include a link to it on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Uh, but they spent a lot of time talking about the, the history of these tapestries and the symbolism and the differences uh, between them. Uh, for instance, in Touch, the unicorn is smaller and more goatish in appearance. Like it basically looks like a goat unicorn uh-huh. uh, with the beard. It's also small in stature. Uh, also, the woman is touching its horns in a highly suggestive manner. Uh, but then in the other paintings, the unicorn is more uh, equine in appearance, though it still has the goatish beard. And that sixth painting, To My Only Desire, this one still remains a bit of a mystery. And you have these various theories on what it uh, is referring to, hmm. uh, including like, you know, psychic phenomenon. But the one that, that I like the most is that it concerns human obsession with material possessions. Oh, that's weird. Like greed as a perceptive sense? I guess. Uh, I mean, you, can, you look at the painting and you see that, yes, the woman is holding a chest of jewels. And uh, almost comically, the lion is about to eat the fabric of the, the pavilion or the tent. Huh. Uh, and the unicorn's not really doing much, though. The unicorn is just basically in the same posture that uh, you'll find it in another one of the tapestries. Oh, well, I want to learn more about that. Yeah. Well, like I say, that, uh, that episode of uh, Ideas is, uh, is, is, is really fascinating. Now, another set of unicorn tapestries uh, is that uh, that we know as the, the hunt of the unicorn. Now, these were probably woven in Brussels in the late 15th or early 16th centuries, and they, they feature a common theme from art of that period, noblemen hunting the unicorn. And these are, incidentally, the same paintings brought to life in the opening credits of that 1982 adaptation of The Last Unicorn. You know, can I confess, I've never seen it. Oh. Should I see it? You should. It's good. It's yeah. um, it's all set to the music of America. America, as in like Ventura Highway and yeah. uh, is, what, Horse With No Name? Yeah. Horse With One Horn? Horse With One Horn, Been basically. through the desert on a horse with one horn. They, and... they had, there's some catchy America tunes in that, the, the theme song especially. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, well, wait a minute. Is it about a horse with one horn or is it something else? It's about the last unicorn, the theme song. It, it, this is custom music. They didn't just oh, grab America. Ori- original music yeah. by America. Yeah, they didn't just grab it off the shelf. They okay. commissioned it. Uh, they're, a, a, they're a part of the, the fabric of the film. Nice. So the, these seven tapestries tell the story of nobleman hunting the, uh, the, the unicorn. But as uh, pointed out by uh, Helmut Nickel in a 1982 Metropolitan Museum Journal article, it's difficult to establish the exact narrative sequence because two of the tapestries are in a different style. So, and there are several different reasons uh, for this, most of them entailing uh, the work of two different artists. Sort of like uh, you want a complete tapestry set of the hunting of the unicorn, but uh, you only have four available from this um, artist and then two available from this one. So you just sort of mash them together and, well, now it tells a complete story. Well, what's the story? Well, it seems to to go together like this. There's the start of the hunt. There's the unicorn at the fountain. The Mm -hmm. unicorn attacked. The unicorn defending himself. The unicorn is captured by the virgin. The unicorn is killed and brought to the castle. And then finally, the unicorn in captivity and no longer dead. Uh huh. So they kill it, they bring it back to the castle, and then it resurrects. Well, basically, again, if you think about the the idea of this capture of the unicorn um, as um, as the story of Christ, I mm-hmm. mean, what happens with Christ? Christ is is betrayed. 
Uh, he is uh, he is put on the cross. Oh, yeah. he, is, he is executed essentially, but then he uh, returns to life. He is resurrected, and in that, uh, believers find hope. That's interesting. Now, one thing I would notice is that the unicorn in captivity in the versions of this I'm looking at, it's in a pen. It's fenced in. It can't escape, but it still has its horn. Mm-hmm. So I'm at least seeing the horn has not been harvested. Right. The liver has presumably not been pulverized. Uh, so there's hope in that as well. Now, we mentioned earlier that we have Eastern unicorns as well. Oh, yeah. And and it makes sense, right? Because on one hand, it's not that crazy of an idea. It seems like a complete no-brainer that a culture would eventually imagine a creature with a single horn or other uh, protrusion coming out of its head. Well, especially since there actually have been some versions of animals like this that exist on Earth. Exactly. You know, because we get into uh, we get into uh, areas of uh, of Indian Asia that either currently have rhinoceros or have had species of rhinoceros in the past. Yeah, and if you're thinking, "Hey, wait a minute! Don't rhinoceroses have two horns?" You need to think about the Indian rhinoceros. Right. So, so many African rhinoceroses have two horns, but the Indian rhinoceros has one nose horn. Right, and is a and is a very strange looking beast if you were accustomed to only seeing their uh, their African cousins. Mm-hmm. And so we have to think about this particular rhino when we look at things like the Chinese Kailin, which in its form and function uh, varies depending on who, when, and and where the tale is told. But it is one of the celestial beings alongside the dragon, the tortoise, and the the Fing Huang or the Chinese phoenix. Mm -hmm. Um, Think of a deer with the head of a Chinese dragon with one to three fleshy horns or antlers in some cases, scales, the hooves of a horse, the tail of an ox uh, with bunches of of, of spines. Spotted and spiral whorls on its hide, and that's essentially the the Kailin. And in some cases, it also fulfills the role of a Western stork, bringing talented sons uh, with potential for successful civil service careers to families. Uh, it's also depicted as a gentle, musical, vegetarian creature, or just a symbol of auspicious birth, of longevity, and of balanced yin and yang. And and again, there's an argument that these are essentially based on descriptions of uh, of, of a rhinoceros. Mm-hmm. Uh, there also uh, there's also this idea that it is based on the description of an African giraffe. Giraffe? How would that be? Well, in 1414, eunuch commander uh, Xing Ho led the Ming fleet to the coast of Africa and uh, uh, supposedly returned with a giraffe as a tribute to Emperor Yung Lo. Oh wow! And the Somali name for giraffe is apparently Gurin, which might have sounded like Quillen, uh, the, and th- this is the, uh, the name for the emblem of justice uh, in, in Mandarin. So uh, that's, uh, again, you get into this complex uh, web of, of uh, it, it, how much of it is, uh, is, is observations of an actual animal, how much of it is just uh, uh, retellings and misinterpretations of those uh, observations, and then how much of it is just pure myth-making? How much of it is just the, the pure uh, magic of, uh, of religious thinking? I know I've mentioned this a lot on the podcast before, but I think a lot of times we tend to undersell the role of pure myth-making mm-hmm. in, in coming up with these kinds of beasts because we want there to be a mystery to solve, right? Yeah. We, it's more fun to think about, okay, what could have inspired? And I like playing that game too. Uh, you know, we talk about it with the the first fossil hunters, right? The idea of uh, maybe seeing ancient Triceratops fossils inspired the idea of a griffin or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all these types of ideas, which I think are very interesting and worth talking about. But it's also sort of driven of our need to create a causation.
action narrative where we need to say people saw something and that led to them dreaming up this kind of animal. But when you think about the writers of today, writers of today invent all kinds of mythological animals. They come out of their imagination. They met, you know, they put together the characteristics of one creature with the characteristics of another or they to a monstrous dimension change the size of some features of an animal or, you know, something like that. It, it often just comes out of the imagination and I think we always have to keep in mind that ancient people were using their imagination too. Indeed, indeed, and uh, and of course we see other variations of this uh, of this Eastern unicorn, or I almost hate to call it an Eastern unicorn, but just suffice to say, Eastern magical creatures that had something like a single horn in some depictions. Mm -hmm. So you have the Japanese uh, Kirin, you have the Po, which was a uh, Mongolian creature that was depicted as a, a beautiful white horse with a black tail, tiger claws, and then a horn on its muzzle. You have the uh, the high chai, which is uh, which had the body of a horse, reddish uh, yellow uh, fur, a single black horn, and I like this. It was able to detect the guilty and the innocent, presumably by pointing its horn at them. That's what how I like to interpret it. Uh, there's the Tu Ju Shin, which was more like a lion unicorn. Uh, there were Tibetan unicorns as well. Uh, there were at least three different versions of this: the the, the Kari, the Siro, and the Sopo. And of course, these are just a few examples, uh, but I, I think they do help to drive home the idea that we kind of have a global fascination with animals that have a single horn growing out of their head, based again in part on the fact that we have real animals that have this basic, uh, basic anatomical feature, and then uh, we have all of these uh, these imagined forms as well. Why do we find unicorns so fascinating? Like, why is this such a fascinating mythological creature? It's just a horse or a goat or something with one horn on its head. That's not even all that hard to imagine. It's not like a, <laughs> it's not like a pegasus. Like a horse with wings is really weird. You know, you just – you wouldn't ever expect to see that in nature. You know when you see it, it's something magical. But – I don't know. Animals have horns. Four-legged animals have horns. Lots of four-legged animals have two horns. But if they have one horn, now we are in Lisa Frank dream time and it's, <laughs> we're going to cure all of our diseases and we're going to expose all of our sins and folly in comparison to the holiness and purity of this beautiful creature. What is the deal with one horn that's so special? Yeah, it, it doesn't even really evolve much as an idea. It comes back to what Borges said about the first unicorn essentially being the same as the latest unicorn. I at least like that the earlier unicorns had a lot more colors. I, I think the, the Lisa Frank idea is good. I think there need to be unicorns with like purple and black and red and orange. The, this like snow white unicorn, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't really do it for me. Yeah, we need some other equestrian colors in there. You know, we need some dapples and grays, mm -hmm. uh, you know, all, all, all the horse colors. Unicorn zebras. Yeah, why not? Why not? Let's have it. Giraffe coloration. It all works. <laughs> All right, so there you have it. Uh, basically, just a lot of consideration of myth, uh, history, and, uh, and symbolism surrounding the unicorn. But we are going to come back and do a second episode that is going to deal with some of the, the very real organisms in our natural world that are essentially unicorns, uh, as well as some prehistoric examples of single-horned animals. And we will definitely be discussing unicorns created by a wizard. <laughs> all right. In the meantime, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes, uh, as well as links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, 
Twitter, Instagram, etc. cetera. Uh, and I, hey, I want to remind everyone, if you want to support the show, a great way to do that is to go to wherever you get this show, whatever your, your podcast source of choice happens to be. And if possible, leave us a nice review. Leave us a maximum star rating. Uh, that helps us to continue doing what we're doing. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know what you think about this episode or any other, to say hi, to let us know what you like about the show, to suggest a topic for the future, any of that, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 